And welcome once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 785Live.com. Thank you, my darling BB, for that wonderful introduction into today's show. And I'm Shannon Riley. I am a Shakespeare enthusiast. I love talking about Shakespeare. I don't claim to be a scholar. I do claim to be somebody who really enjoys the works of the greatest writer who ever lived. And if you've been listening to this show, you know I'm on a quest right now to do a half-hour segment on each one of Shakespeare's plays, roughly in the order of when we believe they were written. And when I last left you, we were finishing up his greatest tetralogy, his greatest group of four plays written to be performed together, and that was, of course, Richard II, Henry IV, Part One and Two, and we were up to Henry V, which was to be the subject of today's show. So I, I feel bad. I'm going to push Henry V off one more week, and I'm doing it for a very good reason. Because you see, today, at the at this date of airing, it is April 25th, and 457 years ago, a small baby by the name of William Shakespeare was being baptized in Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon, meaning his birthday, his 457th birthday, was last Friday, April 23rd. And since this is my maiden year doing this broadcast, I I just could not imagine not spending at least one program wishing William Shakespeare a very happy birthday. Now, of course, that date, April 23rd, has a dual meaning to William Shakespeare. It is also the day in which the poet died. He died when he was 52 years old, back home in Stratford-upon-Avon, presumably in his bed. And I'm going to be talking for the first half of the show about William Shakespeare's birth and the second half of the show about his death. Now, if you've been listening to the program, you know I've already covered these two subjects on separate podcasts. I talked about Shakespeare's early life, his birth, and, and so forth. I also talked about his final days and his death. But I'm going to take a broader view today to celebrate Shakespeare's birthday. I want to talk about Elizabethan births in general and Elizabethan deaths in general to try to put in context a little bit about William Shakespeare's life and what he would have encountered daily in his existence. So today we're celebrating William Shakespeare's birthday. So run to the kitchen, get a piece of cake, put a candle on it, light it up, and let's celebrate William Shakespeare's birthday. Start the party music, please. Well, for Elizabethan era, that's probably the best we're going to get. <laughs> it's it's bouncy enough, I guess. Uh, but we're going to talk about Shakespeare's birthday in just a moment. So hold the music for just a second, because I want to talk to you about something that's very, very important. First of all, this is my 30th podcast. I'm very excited that I've been able to do 30 different podcasts about the life and times of William Shakespeare, and I'm not done yet. There's still a lot I want to talk about. But there's a lot of really wonderful programming here on KSEF. A lot of great shows. There's The Stoic, The Poet, and The Fool, which is a show I'm loosely connected with, and I have an honor of working with those three gentlemen on their show. There's also Ballots and Brew. There's Kansas is Lit and a host of other podcasts that really fill out this station, and they need your support. Lately, KSEF has been kind enough to put all of the podcasts of Shannon Shakespeare Shundays 
on Apple. And so far, we've had well over 100 downloads, and I'm honored. But it's just a sign that this programming that happens on this wonderful little internet station needs to be supported. So, if you're someone who could possibly sponsor one of these great programs, or know someone who could, please do so. This whole radio internet thing started during the pandemic, and it would be a shame to see it go away. So please, help support KSEF. Get a hold of Carice at 785live.com. Go to their website. Or if you'd like, send me a private message at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. And I'll put you in touch with who you need to know. Also, you can go to that website if you have any questions or thoughts about Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Please consider joining our family and making sure KSEF never goes away. And now, back to the party. All right, so Shakespeare's birthday. How would he have celebrated that birthday? Probably pony rides, cake, balloons. No, none of that. (laughs) In fact, Elizabethans didn't celebrate birthdays. It just wasn't something that they did, at least not the common people. And as cool as Shakespeare is, he was still a common person. So lords and ladies, maybe even queens and kings, might celebrate their birthdays with lavish affairs or dances. This just didn't happen for the everyday Elizabethan. In fact, prior to the Protestants taking control of England, every day was assigned a different saint as a patron saint of that day. And people who were born on that day were to spend their birthday in remembrance of that saint dedicating their day to that saint, maybe fasting or in prayer. Lots of fun. But by the time Shakespeare came along, Elizabeth was on the ground, and the very Catholic country of England had turned Protestant. And the following of a feast day for saints was probably really not something that was condoned anymore. Probably even frowned upon. So Shakespeare might have celebrated with a little mulled wine, maybe with some friends, after a hard day at the playhouse. But very little else would have been done to celebrate Shakespeare's birthday. So we're going to rectify that. Today, we're going to talk about what childbirth was like in the Elizabethan period and talk about it and let you know what women went through just to become a mother. Now, first of all, today, we openly talk about childbirth. Uh, Pregnant women are on the cover of magazines, uh, stars and celebrities who are pregnant. They're celebrated and watched the whole way through. And the birth of a royal, well, that's a pretty huge deal even today. It was a massive deal back in Elizabethan's time. But in Elizabethan England, to the average person, childbirth was not only a necessity and a requirement, but it was incredibly dangerous. Young mothers often were very, very at risk of dying during childbirth. And in fact, a common activity before childbirth was to write your will. Some statistics I saw said that as many as one out of every three births ended in the mother dying. That's pretty heavy. That's an awful lot of people. And it's also where the notion of step-parenting came in and stepmothers, as a matter of fact. Stepmothers were a very common thing because men who were left without a bride and a child very often married again right away simply for the care of that child. It's also, and I don't mean to sound gross here, a lot of the reason why older men married younger women. Not the only reason, probably, but younger women had a much stronger chance of surviving not only childhood, but multiple childbirths. The older a woman got, the more dangerous it became for her. And that was for poor and rich women alike. 
Now, very often, women during the Elizabethan period didn't even know they were pregnant until they felt the child move with inside them, and that was called the quickening. Tests for pregnancies were very hard to come by and very inaccurate. One of the most common tests for pregnancy was, is the woman's urine cloudy, or was it a pale yellow? Another test was putting a knitting needle in the woman's urine to see if it would rust, and if it did, there was a good chance she was pregnant, but none of these tests were truly certain. Now, about six weeks before delivery of their child, women would go to what is known as the lion. They would sequester themselves into a room in their house. Light would be blocked off to that room almost from everywhere so that no bad humors could enter. The windows, except for one small window, would be closed up shut nice and tight. A small window would be left open to get fresh air and to get some light, but overall, the idea was to make the room as dark and as quiet as the womb itself for mother and child. What few accounts that exist of women giving birth during the Elizabethan period were oddly enough written by men, and mostly monks. Men were not allowed in the room when the birthing process was taking place. Only women, and usually only the woman who was giving birth and possibly a midwife if they could afford one. Very often, women gave birth all by themselves. During the Catholic era, they were allowed to have implements of faith, crucifix, medals, things about a certain saint. St. Margaret was a patron saint of pregnancies, for instance, and they would mutter prayers to St. Margaret as they gave birth, hoping to quicken the speed of the birth. Men weren't allowed in the room. So we can't really trust the account that these men wrote. But there is something very interesting about the midwife. Now, the midwife was usually a woman who was older, who had experienced giving birth herself, and usually was someone who has very used to being in that birthing chamber and knew how to turn the child if the child was in the improper position for birth to try to avoid breach. They also were during this period, surprisingly, given permission to baptize the child should it die during the birthing process. This is the only time and the only sacrament women were allowed to perform. A woman wasn't supposed to be able to do this, but if the child's life was in danger and the child was dying or even born dead, baptizing that child was the only way to ensure that that child's soul would enter into heaven. So midwives and midwives alone were given permission to baptize the child. There's another striking thing that happens about midwives here. Midwives were often the ones who were victim of burning at the stake due to being a witch. Now, witches were still a very common belief in the Elizabethan period. Witches were a very serious thing. It was believed that there were witches ever present in every community, and the good Christian had to watch out for that witch. Midwives, who were often trusted older women who were brought in to give birth, also were the most common people to later be claimed to be witches. And there's an interesting theory why. During the birthing process, it was believed that if the bride chewed on very old brown bread, it would help the child in an easier delivery. This brown coarse bread was believed to thicken the walls of the uterus and allow the child to slip out a little bit easier, and eating bread while giving birth had that effect. The thing was is the bread had to be old, and the old brown bread that they had in this period was often susceptible to a mold. And that mold, though eaten, could not necessarily kill you, but could cause hallucinations. And there were accounts of women recounting that when they were giving birth, their midwife was in more two places at once, or they floated through walls, or even floated in the air. 
This could be why midwives were considered to be possible witches when the woman gave birth, suddenly settled down, was relaxed, and remembered what happened. It was a bad time for that midwife. I just think that's an interesting theory. We don't really know, but I think it's a very interesting theory that this could have been the case. Now, of course, there were no drugs to aid in the support of a woman while she was giving birth. Cesarean sections were very rare and usually only performed after the mother had died and was a last-ditch resort to get the baby out of the womb. So, it was a very scary time to give birth during the Elizabethan and Jacobean period. All of the deliveries were done at home, and if the woman survived that birth, she still had several weeks of recuperation that were also dangerous. The danger of infection, the danger of getting pregnant again. There was also the danger of giving birth multiple times. Multiple births, twins, were more likely to end in the mother dying during birth than a single birth. And the weeks afterwards, she had to be watched and carefully cared for. Very often, the poorer you were, the more likely you had no choice but to get up and go back to the fields the very next day. Nobody could replace you. So there was definitely a higher amount of infant and mother death during childbirth among the poorer classes than there were the wealthy. What's fascinating to me too, though, is that when royals would go into birth, rather than it being a very private and solemn ceremony, there are often spectators, men, women, members of court, parliament, all crammed into the room to watch this person during a very personal time give birth. It was also believed that the sex of that child was completely up to the woman. What she ate, what she drank, how she prayed, any conduct she did during her pregnancy could lead to the sex of that child. And if you gave birth to a girl, at least to a royal girl, there's something that you did that was a failure. So giving birth was a dicey proposition to anyone of any stature during the Elizabethan period. And finally, there's the issue of the child. Infant mortality rates were incredibly high. If you survived birth, there was still a very strong chance that this child would die before they reached the age of one year old. William Shakespeare himself was the eldest child only because the first two children his parents had died before they reached the age of one. When Shakespeare was born, the infant mortality rate was very high. In fact, as many as 200 out of a thousand children born that year would die before the age of five. Shakespeare would lose another little sister before the age of five as well. So infant mortality rate was a very serious issue. And when Shakespeare was born, the very year he was born, the plague broke out in Stratford-upon-Avon. So the very fact that Shakespeare not only survived his first year and went on to live a long life is in itself nothing less of an almost miracle. It was believed that if you could get your child to the age of 10 years old, it was highly likely that they would live to adulthood. All right, that's the first half of Shakespeare's birthday. We're going to come back in just a few minutes and talk a little bit more about Shakespeare's birth, life in Shakespearean England, and what it was like to live and die in Elizabethan England. We'll be right back after this short message. Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75live.com. I'm Shannon Riley, your host for the only half hour dedicated to the works of William Shakespeare in Northeast Kansas, Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. And today we're celebrating Shakespeare's birthday. It was last Friday, 
I missed it because I'm only doing this once a week and it's a Sunday, but this is the day he would have been baptized 457 years ago. So we're talking a little bit about what childbirth was like during the Elizabethan period and we're going to touch now a little bit more on some other subjects regarding Shakespeare and his birth and death that happened both on the date of April the 23rd. I want to talk, first of all, Shakespeare himself had some quotes about birthdays. He quoted birthday three times in his works. And so now it's time for... That's right, the Shakespeare quote of the week. And I'm gonna give you three. Actually, I'm gonna give you more than three because I think some of these are pretty cool. First of all, he quoted birthday, the use of the word birthday in his play, Julius Caesar, with a quote, this is my birthday as this very day was Cassius born. This is spoken by Cassius right before a battle when he's certain his imminent death is to follow. So it's a little bit depressing issue to birthday. Not near as depressing as this one too. It's my birthday. I had thought to have it poor, but since my lord is Antony again, I will be Cleopatra. From Antony and Cleopatra, Act 3, Scene 3. Now what's fascinating about this quote of a birthday is it's from Cleopatra herself and it really, she mentions it will, I held it poor, meaning she doesn't expect it to be a good birthday. That's really because Antony was in a bad mood and had had a huge temper tantrum in front of her. Now he is suddenly happy again and has ordered cups to drink wine. And Cleopatra is suddenly happy herself that at least Antony is in a better mood. So it's not really about her, it's about him. And then there's one other quote in Pericles, in Act 2, Scene 1. Marry, sir, half a day's journey. And I'll tell you, he hath a fair daughter, and tomorrow is her birthday. And there are princes and knights come from all parts of the world to just and tourney for her love. The term birthday is not one word here. But here's my favorite one. It doesn't really say birthday in it, but I think this is something we should all celebrate. And the older I get, the more I believe this. With mirth and laughter, let old wrinkles come. The Merchant of Venice, Act 1, Scene 1. Grow old with someone you love. I'm lucky enough, hopefully, to do that myself with my beautiful bride. Let's celebrate birthday with that quote. With mirth and laughter, let old wrinkles come. All right, let's talk a little bit more about uh, birth and actually what the Elizabethans did to try to prevent it. Now, Elizabethans were not blind to the fact that giving birth was dangerous and sometimes the very act of having relations with your bride doesn't necessarily mean you were looking to procreate so people of the elizabethan period did indeed practice rudimentary forms of birth control now even then by the standards of the church birth control was seen as a sin it was something that prevented the ability of a woman to go forth and multiply so it was something that was done quietly, secretively, among married couples. As a matter of fact, if you compare married couples in the Elizabethan period to those of members of the cloth, the Protestant preachers, uh, they had a tendency to have 6.8 children in their marriages, where the average Elizabethan had around five. So obviously the preachers of Protestant religion practiced what they preached. There were a couple of ways to try birth control during the Elizabethan period. One way was to prolong breastfeeding. When a woman was breastfeeding, she was less likely to ovulate. It was nature's way of spacing out children, and they knew this. And so a woman would often breastfeed her child much longer 
simply for a form of birth control. They also practiced things like withdrawal, but this was highly frowned upon by the church. And many women knew access to certain effective herbs that would allow, well, a fetus to be aborted. They may not have even known they were pregnant. They would take the herbs as kind of a morning after situation to try to make sure that they could stave off any chances of early pregnancy. Again, this was considered wrong and considered a sin to the Protestant church, but at the same time, it was well known and highly practiced. I did want to touch one more time on the midwives. In order to be a midwife, you had to really be a person of high character and high quality. These women had to sign affidavits saying they would not keep any of the placenta or umbilical cord. It was believed that these elements could be used in witchcraft. Equally to that bread theory that I gave you earlier in this show, there was also a very heavy drink of mead that was often given to the women in order to let them relax and, and give in to the birthing process. It's also possible that that could have caused some of the hallucinations that many women experienced while they were giving birth. Now, not to be morbid, I want to end off our story today by talking a little bit about Shakespeare's death on April 23rd, 1616. He died at home in Stratford-upon-Avon. It's believed a death mask was applied to his face, which was common to do with people of notoriety, as Shakespeare was quite a celebrity by the time he had passed away. And that death mask still exists, although there is some people who believe that it's a forgery. I've seen pictures of the death mask. I haven't seen it personally, but if there was anyone who looked like what we think Shakespeare looked like, it was that death mask except he was very gaunt, very thin. And it gives a hint that maybe what Shakespeare was dying of was a debilitating disease and not just simply old age. He was only 52. His father lived to be in his 70s, as did one of his sisters, and his wife lived to her 60s. So it's possible that Shakespeare may have had a cancer, a consumption, something that killed him. But we will probably never know what it is. Now, when someone died... Their body was left in their bed, and it was prepared for, once again, burial by the midwives. These ladies would come in, bathe the body, and wrap it in a simple bed sheet. And when it was time to bury the body, it was carried through the streets to the tolling of a bell. The bell would start at the church, pallbearers would lift the body into the air and carry it, usually wrapped in nothing but a linen sheet, sometimes inside a small wooden coffin, and carried it to the church itself. Elizabethans wore black for funerals. Only the wealthiest could provide mourning clothes to the people who came to visit them. But Shakespeare himself was wealthy, and he did provide what was known as mourning rings for his dear friends. He himself had received mourning rings from friends who had passed away earlier, and he bought mourning rings for his dear friends, Condal, Hemings, and Ben Jonson, all received mourning rings from William Shakespeare. Wealthy Elizabethans could afford to be buried inside a church. English cathedrals have a number of elaborate tombs inside, many of them effigies of the person in stone or in bronze. The poor were buried outside the churchyard, usually under a grave marker or a headstone, but the very, very poor were buried in bigger potter's fields, which had no marker whatsoever. People who committed suicide 
or babies who were not baptized or consecrated weren't allowed to be buried inside the churchyard. They had to be buried in what was known unhallowed ground, usually a plot of land outside of town that was not well cared for. Death was a community affair. The dead, particularly those of the rich, were expected to provide a meal for the people who attended their funeral and to offer something to the poor. Shakespeare did. He offered money to the poor and he offered, of course, a meal to all of his mourners who came to his funeral. Shakespeare was buried inside Trinity Church along with his wife, his daughter, and her husband. His other daughter and his son were both buried in the churchyard outside. There's a very interesting thing about Shakespeare's burial inside that church. One, he was buried in the floor of the church, and above where he was buried, you see a wonderful carved bust of William Shakespeare above his gravesite. This bust was added later. It took a long time in order for it to be created. But it's probably the best likeness we had for Shakespeare to exist because his widow and his family okayed it to go up in the church. So. When you look at this bust of William Shakespeare, which has been called the look of a glorified butcher, you see what possibly was the look of William Shakespeare, at least to his family and friends at the end of his life. And I talked about this on another episode, but there was a very wonderful documentary about Shakespeare's head. It was believed that in the 17th century, Shakespeare's tomb was robbed. Now, there's no true accounting of this, and the church claims, of course, it never, ever happened. But there's no doubt that Shakespeare's grave is only three feet long. It's shorter than the other graves, and it looks like the stones were reset. Is it possible that someone broke in in the 17th century, dug up Shakespeare's grave, and made off with his head, as the story was told at the time. If it is indeed so, did the clergy run back in, quickly rebury and re-cement the grave of William Shakespeare, and tried to pull it all off as if it never happened? Well, this story has lasted for generations, until very recently they took in an ultrasonic sound machine into that grave to do deep penetration of the ground to see what they could find. And indeed, they found the bones of all of his family members, including William Shakespeare. Except there's a large, empty, dark space just above his shoulders. Now, of course, the church won't let anyone exhume Shakespeare. If we could exhume him, we could probably, from testing his bones, learn what it is maybe that he died of. And we can put this whole, what happened to Shakespeare's head, theory to rest. But from the looks of things, our dear friend, the greatest poet who ever lived, is missing his skull. And who knows where it could be now. There have been theories about where it could have gone and where it could be, but no skull that has been found and tested has proven to be the right one to have been William Shakespeare's. So in addition to many, many possibly lost manuscripts, Shakespeare's head might have somewhere just waiting to be rediscovered. And finally, I'm going to come back full circle, death to birth, birth to death. And that is in this. When a woman died, giving birth or any other time, if she was a young woman, very often married to a young husband, he would go out in search of another young woman to marry. However, if it was a young man who died, very often that young woman would never remarry, would often join a convent. Elder women 
particularly those of money, were more likely to get remarried than younger women. If a man decided to find a new bride after his wife died, it was unlikely that he would marry a widow who herself might have children. Instead, he'd go looking for a young woman who had not given birth yet to raise his own children, bring more children into his family. But if it was an older man, maybe settled in his time, his children were older, and particularly if that widow had land or money of her own, she would have been highly sought after and would have possibly remarried. Shakespeare's wife never remarried. She stayed Mrs. Shakespeare to the end of her life. It's fun to think about all of these different things. I certainly know that I'm glad that when my children were being born, my wife had all the help of modern American medicine to help her through it. And I'm very proud of my two children. As you can see, I use them in this broadcast. And I'm honored that my wife is with me by my side every day. Happy birthday, William Shakespeare. Thank you for everything you've given us, from the plays, the sonnets, and the narrative poems, to the great contribution that you made to American theater that changed it into the modern art form it is today. Happy birthday, Will. Join me next week as we will pick up with Henry V. Thank you all for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, And as always, keep it barred to the bone.